Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer. This is a bonus episode brought to you by our investigative platform Noteworthy, where we carry out journalistic projects based on ideas sent to us by the public. I'm Susan Daly, and this week we publish the findings of an in-depth investigation by Michelle Hennessy of The Journal, Maria Delaney of Noteworthy, and freelance reporter Martin Beans-Ward. They delved into the impact of the justice system on travellers, including the over-representation of travellers in Ireland's prisons. Here today to dive into this topic with me is our reporter, Michelle. Michelle, thanks for joining me. Hi, Susan. Now, you and Maria Delaney at Noteworthy have previously looked at the plight of travellers, particularly traveller children, in a number of areas from education to health to housing. And on those subjects, it was painfully clear how high the odds are stacked against members of the community from the very start of their lives. So when working on this latest issue, it emerged that statistics are just as stark when it comes to travellers in prison. Michelle, how do travellers compare to the general population when it comes to their experience of the justice and penal system? Well, when it comes to the traveller community, we don't always have a lot of data to back up the anecdotal stuff that we're hearing. But when it comes to prisons and representations in prisons, we do have data. So what we know is and what we have known for a number of years is that travellers are vastly overrepresented in prisons. It has been over the years as high as 9 or 10%. The most recent figure we have is 7.3% of the prison population. Now that figure comes from the Irish Travellers Access to Justice report. That was a big piece of research that was done recently, published in the summer, uh, and that was conducted at the University of Limerick. Now remember, in context with that 7.3% of the prison population, travellers make up less than 1% of the general population. So you can see there that overrepresentation. If you break that down, traveller women account for 14.4% of the female prison population. So that's even higher in terms of female representation in the prisons. Traveller men account for 7% of the male prison population. Again, I just want to point out, they make up less than 1% of the general population. So you have to put that in context. They're also overrepresented in youth detention in Oberstown. Uh, the most recent official figures put it at around 20%, but I've been told it's probably higher than that. So a young person is expected to self-identify as a traveller. That's the way the data works. A young person may not want to identify as a traveller, or it may be the case that they have one traveller parent or one settled parent. So it's not always clear. Um, that skews the data. It's likely that it is higher than that. I've also been told that it's quite rare to see a young settled girl being sent to youth detention after um, she's gone through the, the court system, or the criminal justice system in general. But there are some young travellers there. So we're seeing the distinction at every level, both in male and female prisons and in youth detention. So there are some young traveller girls in detention there. And as you rightly point out, that is unusual even among the general population. I imagine the factors leading to this level of incarceration are quite complicated, Michelle. According to the experts you spoke to, what what are the main factors? Well, you see the same types of themes with travellers as you see with other marginalised or disadvantaged groups in society. There are low levels of literacy or education and training in general. People will probably already have heard the stories about travellers being placed at the back of classrooms to colour in with crayons while the rest of the children in the class did their lessons. Now, in our last investigation that you mentioned, Susan, we focused on traveller children, the experiences of traveller children across a number of areas, including education. And we heard similar stories relating to children who were on reduced hours at school. So we're still seeing these types of issues. Now that ties into high levels of early school leaving and high levels of unemployment. 
What we also know is that travellers in both their childhood and their adult lives have often been through very serious trauma. Uh, As children, they may have lived in overcrowded, poor quality accommodation. Again, this isn't an issue of the past. We had a report from the Children's Ombudsman in recent years about the Spring Lane site in Cork and the dire conditions that children there were living in. Traveller children are overrepresented in foster care in Ireland and there's obviously trauma that's often associated with that. There's a high level of suicide in the community. So in all likelihood, a child in the community has lost somebody close to them or knows somebody close to them who is affected by suicide. There's trauma obviously associated with that. Now this all ties into addiction. We know alcohol dependency is a big one in the community. There are also issues with other types of drugs, including heroin. And underneath all of this and linked to all of this is a denial by the state for many, many years and the wider community of the traveller identity, forced assimilation, being stripped of their culture and generally being made to feel entirely unwanted in their own country. And all of these factors are mirrored when you look at the contributing factors in other marginalised ethnic groups. So, for example, research on the Maori indigenous people of mainland New Zealand, they show similar trends and they make up 12.5% of the population in New Zealand, but 51% of the prison population. And again, for women, it's even higher, similar uh, to the situation with traveller women in Ireland. For Maori women, it's 56% of the prison population. For juveniles, it's 61%. So you can see there, there are these parallels and outcomes with groups who are facing the same types of issues. And for any of our listeners who feel like that's a very strongly painted portrait, I would refer you to uh, Michelle's and Maria's astounding series on young travellers that is mentioned there. It is available to read on noteworthy.ie. The project's called Tough Start. You should find it there because what you described, Michelle, there is so closely linked. Poor outcomes in childhood leading to poor outcomes in later life and ending up in detention is one such obvious result. But is there anything else to be looked at in, say, the actual policing of travellers? Like, does the community feel it has a different experience with Gardaí than members of the settled community might have? Yeah, they do. And it is important, while the factors that I I just referenced there are all obviously massively contributing uh, to the, the poor outcomes in adult lives, it's important to consider whether interactions earlier on in the justice pathway made it more likely that a traveller would end up in youth detention or would end up in prison. Now, the Irish Traveller's access to justice research that I mentioned earlier highlighted extreme deficits in the relationship between the community and Gardaí. Many travellers felt they had been stopped and searched because they are travellers. So, for example, near a halting site, they would have been stopped uh, or they know that the particular guard they're dealing with knows that they're a traveller. And the research took into account that there would have been an increased number of checkpoints during the pandemic and that may have inflated figures. So they specifically asked how many had been stopped prior to the pandemic. Just 11% said they had never been stopped prior to the pandemic. And one fifth of the participants in that research said they were stopped by Gardaí once a week. Now that's quite startling uh, if you consider, you know, in the general population, if you ask the same questions. There's no way that one fifth of people would say they're stopped once a week by Gardaí. Um, they also in the research reported Gardaí carrying out searches without warrants or failing to explain why they were being searched. Some travellers who spoke to the researchers gave examples of Gardaí searching the wrong home, uh, turning up with a warrant for a halting site rather than a specific bay in a halting site. 
And I spoke to Bernard Joyce of the Irish Traveller Movement. He pointed out that you'd never get away with that in, say, a housing estate, turning up with a warrant for an entire street, going into multiple houses, checking multiple cars, when one specific individual in that housing estate on that street is under suspicion for something. So those kinds of interactions obviously do nothing to improve the relationship. And just over half of those surveyed said when they were stopped, they were not treated respectfully in those interactions. Again, that's highlighting that tense relationship between Gardaí and the traveller community. That's absolutely multi-layered there. So what has Angarda Shiakona's response been to any suggestions of profiling of a specific community as you've outlined there, Michelle? Well, Commissioner Drew Harris was asked about the report when he came before the policing authority shortly after the research was published. And while he acknowledged that there was work to do on their relationship with the community, he basically said they'll have to look into the allegations. He said the report had been published without them having an opportunity to look into it and to respond to individual allegations. And he also said specifically he does not believe that racial profiling is taking place. Now, Helen Hall, who's chief executive of the policing authority, in an interview with me as part of this investigation, criticised the commissioner's response to the accusation of racial profiling. She said they weren't satisfied uh, with what she said she believed was a knee-jerk reaction from Drew Harris at that meeting. First of all, there's no way of checking all of those allegations. It's not the type of report it was. It was supposed to be anecdotal and it collected together views from hundreds of people. Uh, We know that the level of trust is is very low, so it's unlikely that many people in the community will actually directly report to the Gardaí a poor interaction they've had with a member. Uh, And even in oversight bodies such as the Garda Ombudsman, there is a low level of trust. It's also quite onerous to make a complaint through the Garda Ombudsman, particularly if your literacy levels are very low. reporting of these kinds of incidents, it's not taking place as much as it should be. There are some fairly clear themes coming across in that report, and it is meant as more of a general indicator of wider issues. Now, Helen Hall, when she spoke to me, pointed out that without better data, ethnic identifiers, tracking every stop and search as it's done in other jurisdictions, it's not possible for the commissioner to definitively say that profiling isn't happening. Now, we can't definitively say it is happening, um, but in terms of, of definitively saying he doesn't believe that that's happening, that's not possible. Uh, proving it either way is not possible. And without ethnic identifiers to track these kinds of interactions, it's also not possible to identify the deficits, to improve on those things or other issues within the organisation relating to particular ethnic groups or other minorities. And she pointed out that the perception of behaviour is important here. Now, for example, Angardashi Kana's own working definition of a hate crime refers to an offence that's perceived by the victim to be even in part motivated by prejudice or based on factors such as ethnicity. And Helen Hall argued that if they're willing to accept the definition of a hate crime based on perception, they should be willing to accept a report with findings that are also based on perceptions of a number of people within that particular ethnic group. That's right, Michelle, because Gardaí are expected to make decisions on the hoof every day based on their response to what members of the community, any community are saying to them has happened to them. It seems odd, to say the least, that this wouldn't be something that can also be applied to the traveller community experience. And I feel also we've had this conversation about the dearth of data um, in other areas, in particular health, where it's not necessarily the identifiers always recorded about people being members of the traveller community, not. And that means it's really, really hard to set up sort of measurable, specific responses to the gaps because the gaps themselves are not being measured. However, I will say the Gardaí have taken on board some of the recommendations of her report. Is that right? What's happening, Michelle? 
Yeah, that's right. Now, the commissioner has said the organisation is considering the findings. That tends to take time, particularly in that organisation. So in terms of longer term plans or policies that are a direct result of that research, we'll have to wait and see. One immediate response was a commitment to developing informative videos to explain Garda powers of stop and search, uh, to explain people's rights in those circumstances, also to explain the the types of rules and regulations around warrants and what should be in them. Uh, I spoke with Superintendent Michael Corbett from the Community Engagement Bureau and he told me that work is already starting on those and they're doing that with the University of Limerick, uh, which carried out the research. So there is that collaboration there. There is as well ongoing work within the organisation, particularly that Community Engagement Bureau, to work with traveller representative organisations to pull in feedback. They have a specific advisory group and they would have been discussing the findings of that report and that's being fed into the development of policy all the time. Now, what I've heard from the Garda side is that for them, this is a balancing act. They have to police, they have to enforce the law if there's criminal behaviour taking place. But there is a recognition more than ever now, I would say that they're not always doing things as well as they should be. And they know that they have to improve that relationship. I asked Superintendent Corbett about the potential use of those ethnic identifiers to track arrests and stop and search interactions. He said they've been told they'll need a legislative change to allow that to happen. And this doesn't just apply to Ngarda Shikana. There are other state bodies and government departments that would need that legislative change. Now, you already mentioned, Susan, that we had trouble getting data in in the last investigation that we did. And that's probably the reason for it, that everybody is going to need this legislative change to start using those ethnic identifiers. So there are discussions with the Department of Justice about that. That's something the guards want to be doing, he told me, because they recognise that at the moment it's difficult for them sometimes to really pinpoint where the organisation has those deficiencies, uh, the scale of those deficiencies, and this would massively help them with that. But all of this takes time. This is not a problem that has one solution or that has solutions that will very quickly result in significant improvements in the situation. And that's obviously frustrating for the community because the problems that we have now are the same ones that they were talking about 20 years ago. Right. And of course, then when we go further down the line, Michelle, and we have travellers who are convicted of wrongdoing and they're currently in prison, there are immediate pressing concerns for, for them What are the particular issues or concerns that those working with those travellers in prison have raised about, say, their treatment? So there's one particular issue that came up a few times with people that I spoke to who work with travellers in prison, and that's the perceived use of protection, uh, which can lead to reduced opportunities to build up points for privileges in prison, say, to get an extra phone call a day. Now, Anne Costello in the Irish Travellers in Prison Initiative told me that this protection initiative is not being explained to travellers well enough when they first arrive. It seems like a good thing. It basically uh, puts you in what's perceived to be a safer position. You're spending more time in your cell, you're on a special wing. But people who are on protection are missing out on opportunities for education, for taking up jobs within the prison. And like I said, they're missing opportunities to build up points for privileges that will get you on what's known as an enhanced regime. So if you're, uh, for example, going to school a lot, if you're going to the gym a lot, you build up these points, you get into an enhanced regime. It gives you an opportunity to do more in the prison. Uh, And like I said, to get things like an extra phone call to your family, which for travellers in particular is really, really important. Now, Anne told me that 
there was a pilot that they did in uh, Castlereagh prison that saw a surge in numbers attending education because one prisoner who was a traveller was allowed to do a meet and greet with new arrivals and he explained the pros and cons of protection and he encouraged them to join the school. They want something like this rolled out nationwide. They're also involved in rolling out updated training for the new recruits into the prison on how to better explain, how for the prison officers to better explain what protection means. It doesn't appear as though there's anything planned for the current officers or to facilitate that kind of meet and greet that Anne spoke about, but that is something that they're pushing for. Now, something else that has obviously come up is the reported use of slurs or anti-traveller language by staff. Anne Costello said she's still hearing reports of some prison officers using the K-word. She said what's needed is a clear message from the top down that if somebody uses that language themselves or if they hear somebody else using it and they don't challenge it, that there could be serious implications for their career. And she said that with some people, you know, the, the carrot will work. But for some, it's only the stick that will work. Some need there to be consequences rather than you should be doing this because it's the right thing to do. And to go back to your previous point, Michelle, of course, one of the hopes for former inmates is that there should be opportunities for them to exit the system and find new paths that reduce recidivism. In other words, that they won't find themselves in prison again. And from what you're saying, there's a sense these opportunities are not equally available for travellers who've been been in prison, even outside of the, the protection scheme that you mentioned. Yeah, that's right. So there is a perceived difference in the opportunities for jobs in prisons or schemes like community return. Now, that's supervised release for unpaid community work. And that obviously is really helpful in re-engaging with the community outside prior to your release for a period of time. It also helps with, um, you know, developing a routine that would be outside the prison because for a lot of people, particularly those who've been in and out of prison a lot, it's very difficult when you go back to the outside world to get out of the prison routine and and to develop a new routine outside of prison, um, particularly when it comes to, you know, going to a job every day. So that's something that's really helpful, those types of schemes. Now, according to Anne Costello, she said travellers are underrepresented in that community return scheme. And she said you can't take any of the the figures around that in isolation because there may be a variety of reasons when individual circumstances are considered. But she said they're working with the probation service at the moment to open up those types of opportunities for travellers. She suspects it might be hard to get them into certain places for unpaid work due to discrimination because we know that in the general employment market, it is also harder for travellers to get in there, to get jobs, uh, for young travellers to get um, opportunities as apprentices or work experience. That's very difficult. So we're, we're potentially seeing that in these types of community return, uh, unpaid community work situations as well. And Michelle, the impact of imprisonment, I mean, if we're, we're going to finish on this note really, is that it's not just felt by the person who's locked up, of course, it's by their their whole community, but in particular, their family members. Um, what did you hear from family members of travellers who are currently in prison? Yeah, I think you have to bear in mind whenever we talk about any kind of traveller issues, that travellers are more likely to have very large families and very close families. So 
something doesn't just impact on one individual. It's impacting on an entire family. And you're talking about a lot of people there. I spoke to two women. One was the mother of two men who are currently in prison. Another was the partner of a man who also is in prison at the moment. He's been in and out since he was 14 years old. So he started in youth detention. And both of these women, when I spoke to them, they expressed very serious concern about the mental health of their loved ones. One of the sons um, and the woman's partner, they both have addiction issues. And both women told me they just don't feel like the supports are adequate and there's very little to support them on the outside. So it's often left to them. And bear in mind that they're struggling on the outside. I mean, they're, they're still dealing with a whole host of other issues that many travellers are impacted by and they're raising large families. They're now doing it on their own uh, with very little financial support. So it's very difficult for them to put those types of supports in place or to even know where to go to get them. And this, of course, is on the back of what we know already about the higher risk of poor mental health and suicide incidents in the travelling community in general. Yeah, that's right. We know suicide rates among travellers are higher than in the general population. 11% of travellers in Ireland die by suicide and 82% of the community have been affected by suicide in some way. In prison, there are really long waiting lists for the prison psychologist. And that's not just for travellers. But we know that there's a huge amount of trauma in that community, as we've already talked about. So in March 2021, there were 1,200 people waiting for psychology services in prisons, and there were more than 500 waiting for addiction services. I was struck also by the impact of the incarceration of these men on their families. Now, both women that I spoke to, they're absolutely devastated by it. Their lives have been very, very hard and much harder as a consequence. One woman said she's not able to socialise when her partner's in prison. And bear in mind, he's in and out all the time and has been for his entire life. She said culturally, it wouldn't be appropriate for her to go out at night when her husband isn't around. She's had to raise their son almost entirely on her own. They lost a baby a number of years ago. The baby died a few days after birth. And the woman said she's had several miscarriages since then. Her husband has addiction issues. He has very serious mental health issues. And she said she's the one who's left trying to access the services for him to set things up when he's out. She said she doesn't get any help from the state with this. She does get help from some local community services, uh, but a lot of it is really left to her. And as I said, she's already dealing with a lot. The other woman I spoke to, she's had to pay her son's drug debts over the years in order to keep him safe. This woman lost a 17-year-old son to a drug overdose. And the other son, the one who's in prison, he was 18 at the time that that happened. He was at the party with the son who died. And she said he never got over with it. He has struggled with addiction. He's been in and out of prison ever since. He had a mental health crisis in recent years, which she said was related to the death of his brother because he's never worked through that grief. And he's now on medication for that. So she said he's stable at the moment, but he's going to be out of prison in a couple of years and she's worried about him. She's terrified for him. You can see in both of those cases, we have examples of people in prison who are clearly dealing with a lot of trauma. So those are two examples of all of the things we talked about earlier, all of those contributing factors that we talked about earlier. But there is a wider impact on their parents, on their partners, their children, their grandchildren. Travellers, as I already said, are more likely to have big families and they're close. So the potential impact can be so significant. It's not just affecting the individual person who's in prison. Michelle, thank you again for such an extensive explanation of all of the factors feeding in and the impact of this overrepresentation of travellers in the system and how they're treated when they're there and potentially the the 
lower odds of them getting back on a track of a fruitful and successful um, life outside of the prison system. Thanks too to Martin and to Maria for their reporting on this subject. And you can read so much more about it on noteworthy.ie and thejournal.ie. You have been listening to this bonus episode of The Explainer, brought to you by noteworthy.ie. It was produced by Laura Byrne. If you want to learn more about our work at Noteworthy and how we source our stories from you, our readers and listeners, head to our site at noteworthy.ie and sign up to our newsletter, which gives you an insider look at the latest investigations by visiting noteworthy.ie forward slash newsletter. Thanks for having us and we'll hear from you next time.